Welcome, everyone. Today we have a special edition of The Richard Krause Show as I introduce you to some very interesting people responsible for some of the very best movies out there right now. Later, we'll meet Jonas Suetamo, the man who now plays Chewbacca in the Star Wars movies, including Rise of the Skywalker. Now, I'm six foot four, and it's not often I have to look up to speak to anyone, but at six foot 11, he's one of the tallest people I've ever interviewed. He's also super interesting. Then we'll meet Christy Wilson Cairns, Dean Charles Chapman, and George Mackay from the film 1917. It's an epic World War I film directed by Sam Mendes about two British soldiers sent to deliver an important message that could save thousands of lives. But first, they must make it past the barbed wire, booby traps, and German snipers. First up, have a listen to Lady in the Tramp. Being a street dog? isn't so bad at all. He's a tramp. I'm free to be whoever I want to be. But we love him. Walk wherever I want to walk. Hey, hi. Are you two uh, twins? I'm her husband, pal. Aha. Eat whatever I want to eat. He's a tramp. You know what? Fine. And we know he'll always stay. Just remember, I got this the old-fashioned way. I stole it. Hey! Come back here! Whoa, Snob Hill. There we go. I got my collar. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Let me just take a little guess here. You're the center of your people's universe, right? You could say that. Your family's just about perfect. Don't, don't, please don't. Well, lady, that's basically all over now. You're about to be replaced. <laughs> Replace me? I don't think so. Lady, this is Lulu. New to the Disney Plus screening platform comes a glossy live action, that means real dogs, remake of Lady and the Tramp, the House of Mouse's 1955 animated classic. The updated version maintains the heart of the original, the story of two dogs from different sides of the track, a pampered American Cocker Spaniel named Lady, voiced by Tessa Thompson, and Tramp, voiced by Justin Thoreau, a schnauzer mutt who lives on the street, is a study in class divides aimed at kids' imaginations. The plot thickens when Lady's owner welcome a baby, and through circumstance, she finds herself on the street, learning about life and love with her new friend, Tramp. Let's meet Yvette Nicole Brown, who plays the well-meaning busybody Aunt Sarah in the Disney Plus version of Lady and the Tramp. We talk about adopting rescue dogs, wearing corsets, and if Brown agrees that her character is the villain of the story. He's a tramp. You know what? Fine. And we know he'll always stay. Just remember, I got this the old-fashioned way. I stole it. Hey! Come back here! You took away more than just a great part. <laughs> I did. From this, you actually took one of the dogs home. You you rescued a dog, even I though did. your character hates, hates dogs. dogs. <laughs> That's not, it proves that I'm a good actress that I was able to pull that off. <laughs> yeah, I, I I rescued Harley. He was one of Lady who, uh, Rose, who plays Ladies, one of her doubles. Yeah, I've had him almost a year. A year next month. And and what was it? Was it just the look in the eye? Was it, what was it? You know, it's funny. I didn't choose him. Matilde, who is Rose's trainer. Whenever someone on set said that they wanted a dog, she we didn't know this. She watched us the entire run of the film because she knew her dogs yeah. and she wanted to see who we were. And the last week I was working, she came up to me. She said, Yvette, I think I know who is your dog. And I said, well, Matilda, let me go in there. And No, no, no. I know. Harley is your dog. 
Wow. And I was like, well, let me see him. And she brought him in. I said, yeah, it's my dog. And, and it was <laughs> just personality? Yeah, was he's it? he's a really, he, first of all, he's he's a little nervous and a little skittish. And I think she knew because I'm very loving and I'm very mm-hmm. patient. I think she knew that I'd be the one to be able to, to bring him out of that fear that he had in, initially. And now he's just rambunctious and running around like a mad person. So I think I kind of did a little bit too much. And soon you start his, to look like one another. Yeah, the we kind of like, do look alike. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's an expert at the side eye. He has an Instagram page and it's a lot of pictures of him just kind of looking like which I love I love that he's a little tough a little tough guy um and he's really the joy of my life like I can't I I've never had a dog I I don't know how I waited this long to have a dog he's lovely whoa snob hell there we go I got my collar (laughs) I got it (laughs) let me just take a little guess here you're the center of your people's universe right you could say that your family's just about perfect. Don't, don't, please don't. Well, lady, that's basically all over now. You're about to be replaced. <laughs> Replace me? I don't think so. Lady, this is Lulu. You almost turned down the part, though, because you love animals, but yeah. Sarah wasn't, and Sarah, as we've said, doesn't like <laughs> dogs. What made you change your mind? You know, I, I know my uh, my acting limitations, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I, there's no way I can look into a dog's face and be mean or, or you know, <laughs> convey that I hate them. Right. Um, and then also a shot in Savannah, and I take care of my dad. I'm a caregiver, and I was like, I can't leave daddy. And, and my mother said, it is a Disney film. It is Lady and the Tramp. You will go and do this and audition and hope you get it. And if you get it, I'm going to watch your dad. And so my mom watched my dad for the month that it took to shoot. And she's currently right now watching my dad and my dog while I'm in Toronto promoting the film. So my mom is like the real MVP. But it was her encouragement and her reminder that Disney films don't come around mm-hmm. every day. So if you get an opportunity to go for one, you go for it. Did you grow up at Disney? I did. Yeah. I did. Um, I mean, I think my first film memories are Disney films. Um and I also love like the Mouseketeers and I, you know, I've everything Disney has been a part of my life, my entire life. So to be on the premiere film on their streaming service is just beyond. So Aunt Sarah doesn't like dogs, no. but you don't necessarily see her as the villain of the piece. In the original film, <laughs> you would have thought that that character was sort of the source of a lot of the bad stuff that yeah. happens, but you don't see it that way. Well, listen, honestly, of course, she's she's the bad guy. <laughs> but I believe that, you know, she's the reason that lady meets Tramp. Mm. Now, she was horrible to make this happen, but I believe that's the reason. So I've decided that she's the, the actual hero of this piece. And I played her with a little twinkle in my eye. Like, I tried to play it as if, you know, you, under, you understand Sarah a little bit. She's, she's lonely. Mm-hmm. And she's coming to, take, to, to build a bond with her niece and her niece's new baby. And she gets shuttled off to watch the dog. And she's a cat person. So she's not happy about it. And she acts out. She has some tantrums and it leads to Lady running away. But, you know, is, is that bad? She's horrible. <laughs> but you can't judge her as an actor. You no, cannot go in and say no. she's a bad person. As an actor, if you if you're playing a villain and you and you don't like them and you're judging them, it's not you're not gonna it's not gonna be a good performance because mm-hmm. you can't play against their their instincts if you're supposed to be the person, right? The, the movie has a number of. Uh, things that update it. Uh, yes. It's a much more diverse cast yes, than it would have been before. Uh, uh, Jacques is now Jacqueline. Jacqueline. There's, yeah, there's yes. you know the, all sorts of uh, of things that update it, but it is still set in yeah. 1909. Yes. Did you do research about uh, into clothes or the way people behaved in a in, I in knew, differently? Well, I knew that they were more genteel back then. I mm-hmm. knew that it was a it was a, a more 
respectable time. So I, I did know, do that research. And then also, as a woman, when you put that corset on, you write back. <laughs> I don't, I, right, as soon as you feel that pain, that tightness around your ribs, you're like, this feels like 1908. This feels, I feel like 1908. So it just kind of came back to me. My sense memory of being a woman in a corset just came back. I heard that the corset was the worst part of this movie. It was the worst part. I think that uh, Kiersey, who played Darling, had it worse than me because a lot of her clothes were like sample size or like vintage. Some of my clothes are vintage, but right. almost all of her clothes are vintage. And their waist size was about this. And Kirstie's a small girl already, yeah. but they pulled it tight where she was just... So there were times when she was just... I'd see her on set and she's just leaning back like, oh. So she had it worse than me. You, yeah. you see pictures from years ago and you yeah. see those tiny waists. Yeah. And you're thinking, I grew up in the 60s and, yeah. you know, I don't remember that. No, and we had slant, we had, the, they had these slant boards that we could lay on if we wanted to, if we want to sit down, we could just lean back on the slant board because we couldn't sit because if you sit, you're just, you know, if you see the scene in the bridal shower with, with, with uh, Aunt Sarah sitting, that is the most uncomfortable I've ever been in my entire life. I'm <laughs> just, just like, I'm just kind of like this and I'm barely, I can barely turn. It was, it was a lot. Yeah. Well, you made it through. Thank you. And you have a new dog. I do, and I have a great film I'm very proud to be promoting, yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank on you. It. Nice to see you. Thank you. Yeah. Nice to see you, Annie. Thank you. Every day could be an adventure. That was a vet, Nicole Bram. You know her from playing Shirley Bennett on the sitcom Community and Nora, AA sponsor to Christy, the central character on Mom. You can see her in Lady and the Tramp on Disney Plus right now. Now keep in mind, though, this is not your father's version of Lady and the Tramp. The Disney Plus version is half an hour longer than the original version and comes with a modern sensibility. That means the regressive and racist The Siamese Cat song is nowhere to be found. Also, the cats are no longer Siamese, and they sing a new tune called What a Shame. The irritable Scotch Terrier Jock is now named Jacqueline, and Tramp no longer has to defend Lady from a group of wild dogs. She's more than capable of doing that herself. Also, Tramp won't be defined by the name Tramp. In this outing, he has no name. Who needs a name, he says. I'm free to be whoever I want to be. Confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi. Your destiny. When we return, we learn not only what it's like to walk in the footsteps of a movie legend, but wear his suit as well. Well, I think to me, Chew has always uh, resembled this uh, epitome of loyalty and friendship and, and all, w com coming with flaws, as, of course, but he's, he is, uh, he's uh, when it comes down to it, he's a very stable, uh, very trustworthy companion uh, who you would want on a trip uh, in a galaxy far, far away. My guest, this segment is starring in one of the biggest movies of the year, and yet you've probably never seen his face. 
He is a stage actor, former insurance agent, and basketball star with the Penn State Nittany Lions, where he played the power forward and center positions, and he was a second lieutenant in the Finnish military. Today, he's not talking basketball or insurance. I'm speaking with Jonas Suatamo about his best-known gig, playing the iconic Wookiee character Chewbacca in Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. He says he was a borderline jobless basketball player who was living with his mother until he answered a worldwide casting call for a seven-foot actor with blue eyes. He got the gig and took over the role from Peter Mayhew, first as a body double in The Force Awakens and later as the lead in The Last Jedi and Solo, a Star Wars story. According to Rion Johnson, in a DGA podcast, hugging Jonas dressed as Chewbacca feels more like hugging a dog than hugging a bear. And have you ever wondered what Chewbacca carries around in his satchel? According to Johnson, Jonas carried around little candies in the satchel for the cast. In this interview, I talk with him about playing the iconic Wookiee character and what it's like wearing the fur suit for 10 hours a day. What are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look at my friends. What can you tell me about the audition to play Chewbacca? How did you audition? It was too long, five months. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was fun. I was I had some sleepless moments, sleepless nights, thinking about what if what if I get it, what, how it's going to change my life, and it, it has changed my life. I, I it's brought more. Uh, more security and more possibilities, and 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 it's been it's been wonderful uh, to to work, and and plus it's been very exciting to have a have a sort of purpose where you get to uh, play this character that everybody loves and mm-hmm. and that means so much to people. And were you nervous at all? Because as you say, this character means so much to people. And Peter Mayhew, who you knew and, and, and worked with, uh, yeah. had played him for so long, and now it's someone new. Were you nervous about the reaction? Absolutely. Yeah. I was uh, always nervous that I wouldn't live up to right. this, uh, this, this uh, essence of the character, that, that it would be somehow different. And it, of course, I see the difference, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I, think the, I think it's there that the... Uh, that the character occupies the similar space that that he that he did, and uh, some things uh, uh, some things uh, change, but some things stay the same. So that that's a goal achieved. And you went to a, a Wookiee boot <clears throat> camp. What happens at a Wookiee boot camp? You eat lots of kashik nuts. <laughs> 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 no, it's uh, it was me and Peter for a week, uh, sitting down, mm-hmm. discussing, and rehearsing. The kind of stuff that Peter used to do right. in the suit. And learning how to walk and doing yes. all that sort of thing. Yeah. The physical aspect of this is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it's mostly physical acting mm-hmm. that that I have to do. And but also decisions about um, uh, reactions and stuff like that. But mostly it's it's about learning to physically portray that character. Confronting fear. It's the destiny of a Jedi. Your destiny. If this mission fails, it was all for nothing. When you see the script, I don't speak Wookiee. 
I don't know how many people in the world do, but it's, when you see the script, yeah, is there English in there? Yeah, English. Uh, a chewy, either chewy moans or chewy parentheses. What What are you doing? Or right. bring me pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know what his intention is. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And so, and that must be invaluable to you as an actor. Then it's it's fun to yeah. know what they meant. Rather than a single one line, he moans. Where I'm just like, where it's it's a yes or no. If it's yes or no, it's usually a, ch- a chewy moans. Yes. But if it's uh, or or something like or that. Or if there's yeah. something longer, yeah, 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 yeah that yeah. moves the story forward. Something like that. Now, the shoot days are long. You're probably on set for ten, twelve, maybe more hours. Is the suit hot? Extremely. Is yeah, it, it's and boiling. How do they cool it? It's boiling hot. You. <laughs> You sometimes, uh, at the end of the day, you you really yeah. you're really out of it because you're so you've been in this uh, heated <laughs> hairy suit for so long that you just start think, not thinking straight and just watching. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's gr- grueling. Yeah. We're not alone. Good people will fight if we lead them. You don't get to take it home. How often do, do they clean it? They clean it. Almost every day they have to do something. <laughs> the maintenance to this suit, the suits that I use, are it's ridiculous. They, they need to do a lot of work so that it maintains its look, mm-hmm. so that it doesn't, because it starts to get matted. It's not, not, no more fluff, and uh, it gets matted, and, the, 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 and uh, also the tangles form, and it, yeah, it's a, it's a mess if you don't clean it. Right. So Is that's why my hats goes off to those who built their own suits. And who wear it in in, in conventions? Because uh, <laughs> there's a team doing yeah. that in in the films. But yeah, and you meet fans at these conventions and things. What's their response to you? How do they how do they approach you? I'm the same as my gratitude. Yeah, they're 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 grateful, and I'm grateful. It's it's a very mutual relationship. Jonas, thank you so much. Thank Pleasure you very much. You. Yeah. Nice nice, nice to, to meet you, you too. We're all in this. <laughs> the end. Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Tickets available now. That was Jonas Suetamo, the man who now plays Chewbacca in the Star Wars movies. Suetamo is smaller in height to Peter Mayhew, the man who originated the role. Mayhew, who retired from acting in 2017 due to chronic knee and back pain, stood at seven foot three at his peak height, while Suetamo is listed as being six foot eleven and a half. Mayhew passed away on April 30th, 2019. Suetamo played tribute to his mentor, writing, I'm devastated to hear about the passing of a dear friend and mentor, the late Peter Mayhew. Peter's warm welcome when I came aboard as his double in The Force Awakens meant so much to me. Studying the character he helped create was always a daunting task, but one that was made easier by his tutelage and kindness as we sought to bring Chewbacca to life for a new generation. He was an absolutely one-of-a-kind gentleman and a legend of unrivaled class, and I will miss him. As the entire Star Wars universe grieves over this terrible loss, my thoughts and prayers are with his wife Angie and his family and all of his fans whose lives he has impacted. Rest assured, his legacy will live on, and the spirit that he gave the character when he first donned the suit will never be forgotten. Next up, we'll meet two of the stars of the epic World War I film, 1917. Stay with us.
1917 is a simple story of duty wrapped up in a high-gloss technological package that delivers a vividly immersive look at life during wartime. Designed to look like one continuous shot, the action in 1917 begins in the trenches of northern France with two men, Lance Corporal Schofield, played by George Mackay, and Blake, played by Dean Charles Chapman, assigned a dangerous mission. With telephone lines down, their general dispatches the pair to travel through no man's land on foot to the front lines. If they can make it past the barbed wire, booby traps, and German snipers, they are to deliver the message that the Germans have set a trap enticing the unwitting British to attack. If you fail, says the general, it will be a massacre. If Schofield and Blake are successful, they could save 1,600 lives, including Blake's lieutenant brother. But first, they must travel through eight miles of the most dangerous territory on Earth. I spoke with Christy Wilson-Cairns, the co-writer of the script, about working with co-writer and director Sam Mendez and writing a film that is presented in one single shot. We began by chatting about the job she had before writing the TV show Penny Dreadful, 1917, or Last Night in Soho, the upcoming Edgar Wright horror thriller. That's Tending Bar. Here's Christy Wilson-Cairns. We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. Congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you. So we'll get to 1917 in yes. a second. I wanted to, to talk a little bit about working in a bar yes. with you. Because you did that for a long time. I did, I did it for time. an eternity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it made me a better interviewer, a better writer. Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways, it was a better education than school for me because you are thrown into lots of different situations yeah. that you have to think quickly about. Yeah. What did you take away from that? Oh, I mean, working the two in an Irish bar in Soho in London that I worked in, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not Irish, but I passed for it because the Scottish accent is yeah. close enough. I'm, oh, I got so much work in the bar. But also, as a writer, you spend your time working in a bar listening to how people talk. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I think it made me, it gave me an edge in writing dialogue that no one else that kind of got the, the, the school I went to. So I really, uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't even quantify also, I mean, you can, I can drink, which is, <laughs> is another great, you know, skill to have in this world. <laughs> well, in Soho, so you're meeting... Uh, a, a, a variety of people. Variety of people. Yeah. Variety of people. Some some crazy customers. <laughs> a few, um, especially this time of year, Amateur Drinkers Month coming up for the Christmas season. Right. You know, but uh, yeah, no, I've, yeah, some some weirdos. Do you still go back there? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, the other movie I wrote, Edgar Wright's film, we set part of it in there, and so we shot in there, and I actually am in the background as the bartender. I love that so much. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's a big part of my life still. I love that so much. The <laughs> the bar, the last bar that I tended bar in. Uh, they've just put a plaque on a chair for me. Oh, that's, I mean, can you ask for anything else? It took a decade. No, or but that's, more. that's, that's pretty special. <laughs> that's like Hollywood Walk of Fame stuff. Absolutely, right? yeah. <laughs> you have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. This story, 1917, is loosely based on a story that Sam Mendez's grandfather told him. Um, what was that sort of rough material for you, and how do you expand on that? Because you've added in, obviously, more characters and, and more things. Uh, tell me a little bit about staying true, I guess, to 
the source material while turning it into a film. Well, I think so. The film is inspired by the stories that Sam's grandfather told mm -hmm. him, you know, when he was 10 years old. But it's not it's not Sam's grandfather's story. So we, yeah. in a way, were quite freed by that. The, the story of 1917, two men, you know, going across to stop an attack is completely fabricated. But we try to adhere to the real world as much as possible. So it's an amalgamation of many different things. But we had a huge burden of responsibility and also a privilege to tell this story, mm -hmm. um, to get it right for the soldiers that had lived and died. Um, who had fought in this horrific war. So, yeah, in a way, we had to pay great homage to um, Alfred Mendez, but at the same time, we didn't have to tell his exact story. This film is extraordinary looking, and it's the thing that everyone's probably yeah. asking you about, is, is it appears to be all one shot it does. Uh, from the very beginning until the end. There's a yep. break in the middle there sure, somewhere, you know. but, there's, but yeah. it, it, it appears to be all Creative one shot. Creative license, you know. Absolutely. So <laughs> did that affect the way that you told the story as a writer it's got to because um, yeah. you can't jump from no, point of view no, to point of view no, or whatever it, it, it massively affects mm -hmm. the screenplay i mean the the fact that you're writing a movie in real time and a movie that's one shot just completely decimates the knowledge that you already <laughs> have as a writer we had to kind of come up with completely new ways to tell the script um because the script had to read like the finished film that was the whole point mm -hmm. of this sam and i wrote it on spec we hadn't sold it. We didn't even know if it was going to work. Right. So we sat down, and instead of writing a blueprint for a film, we wrote the actual film, um, which required a Herculean effort. <laughs> At first, I felt, the first couple of hours we sat down writing, I was like, I'm wearing a straight jacket because you can't cut through time. <laughs> yeah. You can't flash to the men that you're going to save. You can't do any of that. And then slowly but surely, you realize it forces you to be creative in very different ways. Um, and so it was a blessing in the well, end. And I would imagine that every single detail matters, right? Oh, my God. And, and yeah. so the more detail yes. that you can be just in terms of a, a single line, yep. a, a whole scene can hinge on one line we or do. one yes. mannerism. It right? does completely. And also, you know, just the idea of yeah, <laughs> it's a story set in reality, so you can't tell any exposition, right. really, because, you know, there are two people that have been together for a long time, um, Blake and Schofield, and so they don't wake up and go, oh, how is your wife whose name is Martha, yeah, and this, exactly. this, and this. Yeah. So you, everything's so exposed, and so you have to completely reevaluate how you're going to be a storyteller throughout the process, which is just tricky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hard, but fun, is how I would describe it. There is only one way this ends. man standing. Do you take something away from that experience? Did it teach you a different way? Because I doubt that your next film will all be on one shot. It's or not, it, it's it, not. I, I can tell you already it's not. So, um, but, but do you take a, a lesson away? Does it learn, does it teach you that less is more, that exposition isn't necessary? Yeah, that, you know. absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that we really experienced in the writing of this film is how, how intelligent the audience is to never spoon feed them. Um, and that's something I definitely took away. And also just the fact that every single word is a prisoner on the page. It shouldn't, if it's not doing something, why is it there? Right. Uh, and Sam and I were ruthless with the script. We had to be, because you're trying to tell so much with so little. Um, and that was the only way to write this movie, to write this story. So yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> were you there while it was being shot? I was, I was yep, I was every day changing? on set. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, because the nature of the film, there's yeah. no traditional edit. The edit's called the final rewrite for a reason because right. you can do whatever you want in the edit. Right. You can come back and shoot extra stuff and we did not have that luxury. Um, so basically at the end of each day we had 
one or two or ten minutes of film that were going directly into the film, and so it had to be right. And so if dialogue didn't work in the morning of the rehearsal period, we would change it. And there were six months of rehearsals before, so I was constantly refining the script. Yeah, no, I've heard that. That's an extraordinary amount it, of rehearsal. It was. Most often there's no rehearsal. No, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah well, I mean, as some of the other um, projects I've worked on, you turn up on the day and they yeah. decide how they're going to shoot it then and there. But with this, that just wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. And also, Sam is a perfectionist. I think that's the only way that you could achieve something like this is precision. I'm going to see my father. We need to keep moving! Come on! I'm going Possibly make it that way, man. You bloody insane. That was Christy Wilson-Karen's co-writer of 1917, the epic war drama in theaters now. 1917 is a beautifully grim movie. Death lurks around every corner, and the success of Blake and Schofield's mission is never assured. Hope is a remote, elusive concept in the theater of war, but director Sam Mendes weaves in enough humanity in the relationship between the two soldiers and a scene with a French mother and her daughter to give us a window into the horrors of war. Next, we'll meet two of the film stars, George Mackay and Dean Charles Chapman, Find out how complicated it was to make a movie that appears to have been shot in one long take. Stay with us. Game of Thrones fans will recognize one of my next guests. Dean Charles Chapman starred as Tommen Baratheon in the fourth, fifth, and sixth seasons of the HBO drama series. Now he is teamed with Captain Fantastic star George Mackay in 1917, an epic story of bravery set on the battlefield of northern France during World War I. The film was shot on location, so the production staff had to install signs warning walkers and hikers in the area not to be alarmed by the realistic prosthetic bodies strewn around the site. There's plenty of Oscar buzz surrounding this movie based on the thrilling story and that it was shot and edited to appear as one long take that takes place in real time. I spoke with Dean and George about creating the characters and the challenges of the one-shot technique used to film the movie. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. Congratulations on the film. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very, very much. Okay, I can't believe that this is true, so you tell me if it is or not, but you didn't know that this would all be one shot when you signed on. Is that true? When we was auditioning. Yeah. When uh, we were auditioning. Yeah. For the first two auditions, we, we didn't have a clue. All we knew was that Sam was directing it, um, the character name, and that was it. We yeah. didn't even get sent a script. It was just one scene, or you got two scenes. Yeah. And uh, we just give it a go. Yeah. And then it was on the third audition, that's where we first met, that's when we got chance to read the script. Yeah. 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 And at that point did you go, oh no, this is going to be <laughs> yeah. way harder than I thought it would be. No, it was exciting. It was exciting. You right. know, not a lot of people have you know, had the opportunity to make a film like this and yeah. it's nice to be able to experience that and learn from it as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. And work with Sam. Yeah. And did you bring any of your own kind of detail to the characters? Because I imagine in a film like this, you don't have 
uh, a lot of exposition. You know, you don't have a lot of scenes because you, you are on screen together so much. And you would know about one another. So you don't say things about, well, every my family back home and yeah, my yeah. kids. And you don't, you know, all that stuff has to be implied. Mm. But I'm told there was a story about rings. Yeah, yeah, that was me. It was that you. So tell me about the rings. Yeah, so um, in the costume department, they had um, a, a photo referenced wall. And it was like this big, massive wall that went for ages. And... Along the wall, they had photographs of soldiers, no man's land, uh, things of the First World War. And there was one photo in particular that I saw of uh, three soldiers, two of them standing either side, and they were sort of like your average First World War soldier. You know, it was all black and white. It was all buttoned up, you know, very soldiery. And then in the middle, there was one soldier, and he was leaning up against the truck or like a wall or like a door or something. And he had all his coat undone, all his shirt was like twisted, and he just looked so relaxed and so much personality in that one photo compared to the other two. And he had his hand on his chest, and on his hand he had a pinky, a, a ring on his pinky finger and one on his middle finger. And it just reminded me of Blake, that personality. Yeah. You know, even though they're in, in the middle of a war zone in the First World War, you know, Blake's the kind of person to still able to make light of the situation, be optimistic, tell Schofield funny stories. And, uh, that stuck with me, so I put that on Blake's hand. We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. George, you've said that making this movie was a lot like doing theatre. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, you don't really get a lot of do-overs, right? No, I mean, it was... There was a... There's like a pragmatism to, I've, I've not done a huge amount of theatre, but there's like a pragmatism to doing a play where you suss it all out together. There's this sort of theatricality and the romance of rehearsals like there was with this. But then when you come to do it, it's like 7.30, you start no matter what, and you go to the end. And if something happens, you just keep going and you get through to the end and you do it every night. You do it eight shows a week. <laughs> where I think with film, because in film, the, like, the magic of it is that you capture a moment, and I think therefore people are almost a little bit reticent to, to get that moment, to get to that moment before, before we get there. Right. And, you know, there's certain bits, you know, certain scenes which we were careful with this not to overwork them. But also there's like, there's a kind of, um, sometimes people can get almost over-romantic about like, you know, we won't get there, or like, you know, don't spend it too soon sort of thing. <laughs> Where in theatre, I, I quite like the thing that people go, no, it's a job, you do it, you do it every night, and you do yeah. it, and it's the first time for the people watching it, so it doesn't matter if it's not the first time for you, right. it's your job to feel it and make it. And that kind of, like, uh, yeah, pragmatism is something that is that kind of belt and braces attitude is, is something that was needed for this. And six months of rehearsal. Mm. I mean, that is unheard of for a film. Mm. And was that, and I, I mean, you know, Pardon, I, 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 I haven't wrapped my head around the way this movie was made yet, and I don't really want to know, just because it takes some of the magic away. Yeah. But it looks like all one shot. So was this six months, a lot of it uh, spent on, literally on blocking, just figuring out how to move through these sets? And, and, and Because there's a long trench scene that you have near the beginning where you're going through this trench, and people are coming in saying a line, coming back out, and it's, yeah. it's so complex that I cannot even imagine Yeah, I mean, the, trying the, to figure that out. Exactly. I mean, the thing with this film, it really was like a big choreographed dance, li literally a dance between the camera and the actors. Mm. You know, if the cameras move one way, the camera follows, and if the camera does the same thing, we follow. Yeah. And it was this sort of rhythm and sort of um, flow that we sort of all 
got you know come to terms with during the rehearsals. And um, the thing with this is like there was no room to improvise either because the scene had to be the length of the set and the right. set had to be length of the scene. Right. And there was obviously no way to edit or chop and change. Um, so a lot of it was just blocking out and sort of you know learning about the character and research and uh, military training as well. Yeah, but I think as well like with, again without spoiling the magic, but there's. I think when we when we've been talking about like choreography and everything and and the blocking, it sounds quite sort of like we turned up and they've they've gone right. That's the root of the film. You've got right. six months to learn it. Right. The whole thing was this kind of collaborative refining it down and down and down. Where the first time we'd do the scene, then we'd we'd set the the rough markings for that for the corner to come where it needed to come, and then we'd rehearse other bits, and then we'd come back knowing more about the characters and go, actually, we're going to drop that line, and that pause needs to be longer. So let's go back to it. Okay, now the scene, the set needs to be a bit longer. And so the choreography that we then, we ended up to, we ended up with and that we had to stick to was actually kind of learned through improvisations and rehearsals and lots of different bits, you mm. know, over, over time. So it, we're kind of, the final thing that we ended up with was a fluid process to get there. There is only one way this ends. Last man standing. This film, for me, isn't, like all the genre movies, okay, so whether it's a science fiction movie or whether it's a, a sports movie, sports movies are never about the big game at the end. Yeah. Science fiction is never about the laser gun. War movies are rarely about the battle scenes, and that's not that this movie doesn't have a lot of that. There are mm. some scenes of violence in it. But for me, it is uh, a story about a sense of community, a sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. You know, we kind of live in an age of the individual now, I think. And when I watch you two on screen and the mission that you sent out to do, I think it sends a very strong message about the the, uh, the the effectiveness of teamwork and the effectiveness of all being in it for the same reason. Mm. Um, what do you hope that people take away from this? That's really beautifully put. That's really, <laughs> well, first of, like, you know, that's yeah. really nice of you to say. Like I think, I think the what was what's special about this, which again, without giving the magic away, but you feel it inside the final piece, is that the way in which was it was made reverberates through the message of the story which reverberates through the final piece which hopefully will reverberate into the audience who watch it and I think it's about as you say it's the the lengths that we as individuals can go in service of something greater and that greater thing takes many forms but mm -hmm. it's essentially it's a love for your for your fellow human yeah. you know and that 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 greater that greater thing can be a brother could be a friend it could be you know whatever your reason is it doesn't mm -hmm. matter but you know you can you can do more if you if you if you work as a team with that you know with that greater reason. I'm going to see my father. We need to keep moving. Come on. I'm going there, no we can't possibly make it that way, man. You bloody insane. If you don't get there in time, we will lose 1,600 men. Your brother among them. Good luck. That was Dean Charles Chapman and George Mackay talking with me about their film, 1917, 
in theaters right now. It's easy to feel that 1917 is a gimmick film. In the opening scenes, I found the continuous, one-shot nature of the filmmaking a distraction. I kept wondering, how is Sam Mendes doing this? Or looking for clever, surreptitious edits. It took me out of the story, but once accustomed to the gliding camera work by the legendary Roger Deakins, I began to focus on the story's tale of bravery and resilience and less on the trickery that created it. The horrors of war are duly represented, there's barbed wire, dead, rotting bodies litter the landscape, and a bombed-out town is nothing more than the skeletons of buildings, but 1917 does not focus on that. This is a contemplative story of a mission and the men who sacrifice their own safety for the greater good. It highlights the ever-present danger of attack, but it's the character's emotional journey that makes for such a compelling story. Blake wants to stop his brother from walking into a trap while Schofield is driven by a sense of duty. Both men are working for the collective, which in our era of the individual is a potent reminder of the importance of cooperative effort. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to all my guests. That's Yvette Nicole Brown, Jonas Sumitamo, Christy Wilson-Cairns, Dean Charles Chapman, and George Mackay. Most of all, though, thanks to you for listening to me and my craggly voice. We'll speak to you again next week.